This podcast is produced by the ABA Journal. We bring you the latest legal news every day from around the web. Visit us online at abajournal.com. If someone says they're going to hire you as a lawyer, in most situations it doesn't really mean anything until you have their payment in hand. So, how can you move a potential client to a paying client? In an ethical way, of course. I'm Stephanie Francis Warren, and that's what we're discussing today at the ABA Journal Podcast. Joining me are Diane Cartman, a Los Angeles lawyer whose work focuses on defending legal ethics matters, Howard Miller, a Los Angeles commercial litigator, and Greg Ziskin, an immigration lawyer in Memphis, Tennessee. My first question is for you, Diane. If someone has told you they want to hire you, they just need to get their business together before they go ahead with it. What is appropriate in terms of checking in with them to see when they're ready? Well, about 10 years ago, I wrote an article for the ABA GP Solo magazine and indicated at that point I would no longer take lawyers as clients because my client base is entirely made up of lawyers who didn't do email and had a certain uh, familiarity with computers. And because of that, I, I, I will start emailing them an hour later. Because usually in my area, there might be something that's relatively hot that we have to step on right away. And law is not for the faint-hearted. Mm-hmm. So I'll go after, I, I don't know what in a reasonable period of time is when, you know, the house is on fire. When would you let it go if you're not getting a response, but they don't tell you, look, I don't want to hire you? If they, keep, if they keep on saying maybe, when would you let it go? Well, well I pro- one of the things I like to do is I make myself indispensable. When I talk to someone, I start sending them ethics opinions and other things that are directly on point. And then after like um, an hour of discussion or several emails, I'll say, well, I'm going to assume you're all taken care of and just move on. So at that point, they either respond appropriately, in my opinion, by sending money or saying, you know, I'm getting my stuff together. I'll contact you in a day or two, or I will just go forward. Okay. Howard, what do you think? What's appropriate for checking in with someone who's a potential client? Well, I think, you know, in many ways it's like voir dire in a jury trial where a big chunk of the trial is over when voir dire is over, even before the trial begins. The key element, I think, here is when the contact is initially made. If it's a, if it's a new client, which I think the discussion is focusing on, and when the contact is made, I think the nature of the discussions that take place before the client decides to hire you is critical uh, to how the relationship develops. And I think that requires, you know, candor uh, on the part of the lawyer, a real discussion with the client about what the client's goals are as a person or a business. I find all too often someone walks in, for example, with a piece of litigation and has a retainer, and the lawyer automatically takes it because it's business, so long as all the ethical requirements check out. But in terms of the relationship, I think it's it's important even before the client engages you, to have a real discussion with the client about what's the client's goal in coming to you. What's the goal of the litigation? Is it just to win? What are the implications for the business? Uh, What is the client looking to? What are the client's candid expectations about costs and time? And it's the nature of that discussion that begins to build an attorney-client relationship It's a true relationship and not just based on what a retainer agreement says. Have you had those discussions, Howard, where you think and you tell the person, you know what, I don't think I'm the right lawyer for you? 
Well, I've said, no, I've said that on many occasions. I've also talked to a huge and very large number of people out of, I'm a litigator, out of filing suit, who come to file suit by up front telling them, look, this is what's involved. This is how much time is going to be involved uh, in depositions. This is how much time you're going to be in trial. Talk to them candidly, if it's a business, about what the opportunity cost is for them to be focusing on the past instead of the future. There clearly are times when people should bring suits, but I think it's tremendously important uh, to have that realistic discussion with clients about, in my case, what the litigation means uh, with great candor up front. And that avoids a lot of problems in the future. When it's a potential client who's thinking about hiring you and you talk them out of it, do they oftentimes come back with you with other matters? Oh, yeah. No, no. I, you know, the intangible here is trust. And not only do they often come back, but come back with a real sense of trust because it's clear that they were dealing with a lawyer who wasn't just out to get every piece of business that possibly could be gotten, but who was genuinely interested in the client as a person or a business and what was good for them. And, Greg, how often are you uh, willing to check in with someone who might hire you? And how do you go about doing it? My personal practice is mostly uh, physician immigration. Diane made a comment that I think is appropriate for our practice as well, which is that even uh, well in advance of our beginning actual legal work for that client, uh, we need to be uh, indispensable to them. And for us, it's the point when the physician and the employer, the matches actually happen and the uh, an employer hires a doctor. That's when the immigration work would begin. But for us, we may be contacted by a doctor, you know, even a couple of years before the, uh, the doctor finishes their training to ask questions so that they know how the process works. And in that case, we would, for example, I might see if the doctor wants to be on our newsletter list. We have a healthcare immigration newsletter or something that our firm tries to help with that not too many other firms can do, which is actually to help the physician find employment. And we have a, we represent a lot of hospital systems. We have a website that helps link up our clients to physicians that are seeking employment. And if we can be playing that indispensable role, in the matchmaking process, then obviously our chances of getting the immigration work later on uh, go up significantly. Greg, how did you focus on immigration work for physicians? It seems like perhaps it might be easier to get the paperwork for physicians than other professions coming to the States. Well, actually, it's a, it's quite the opposite. It's probably one of the most complex areas within immigration law, and a lot of immigration lawyers that do employment-based immigration steer clear of the doctor cases just because of the level of complexity of the work. So that's always good when you're trying to build up a niche practice area to find something that most other people, there, where there are a lot of barriers to entry, such as it being a very complex area. How I got into it actually is a uh, I, I started my uh, practice in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I'm in Memphis and go back and forth between Nashville and Memphis now. But when I was getting into immigration 20 years ago, I was told by many people in Nashville and elsewhere that uh, that was a, a poor choice of a specialty, that there just wasn't going to be enough work in the area. And one of the things I did was set up one of the first websites in the country. But on with respect to the doctors in terms of getting work from there, I focused on that because Nashville is sort of a Silicon Valley for healthcare companies, and I knew that there was a lot of work potentially in that area. And the firm that I started with, I was doing corporate and uh, securities work for healthcare companies. So I knew that practice area. I also knew that I was going to have difficulty competing with firms in California, firms in New York for the computer companies and for the banks and for the big companies that just weren't in Tennessee. And so I think that finding the right niche practice area that's suitable for your uh, where you are geographically or what uh, where your expertise is is important and that's 
how I got into that, but it's also a, a practice area that uh, I don't usually worry about whether clients have the ability to pay, and I also don't worry about whether they are going to hire a lawyer. A lawyer is going to get hired in the process for the visa. They, there's just too much at stake in a physician recruitment, and the question is which law firm is going to get hired, not whether a law firm is going to get hired. So that's that's where my focus is. Is there much competition in that area? Not that much. I actually I chair a national bar organization for physician immigration lawyers, and I would venture to say there's probably about 25 firms around the country that probably do about 90% of the work in that area. There are uh, a lot of firms that do a little bit of work in that area, but as far as firms that really have a, a strong focus on it, there are not that many. I have a question for all of you, um, and that is when a potential client comes to you, are you willing to work with them on what they can pay you and how they can pay you? And if so, how? Diane, do you want to go first? I'm frankly not willing to work with them. Because my practice is unique and I only represent lawyers, I really can't leverage my hours. So my clients really only want to work with me. I can't say, well, let my associate do this or let my associate do that. And that actually drives my prices up because there's only so many hours in the day and I'm an hourly biller, so we don't take contingency fees. So I'm I'm pretty much un, unwilling to work with them unless it's I, – I will work with governmental authorities. And on occasion, if it's a hugely high-profile case that I have some interest in, I will work with them, but very, very, very rarely. Okay. And do you usually yeah, – I'm assuming you take a retainer? Oh, yes. And then, okay, and they work through it. Uh, Howard, how about you? Well, right now, I mean, the firm I'm with now and have been with for 10 years is a, a pure contingency firm. That's all I do. So that's not the kind of issue. But I've dealt with this issue in the past, and it seems to me that it's really important uh, to have a real understanding of the client's ability to pay and to work out a fee arrangement that makes sense against the value that's being created. I mean, in a way, you know, Diane and Greg and I may be in, in a different situation here, than than firm that faces the question you've asked. Greg has a niche practice with a great specialty that's in demand. Diane, it's the same thing. I mean, is an expert in her area, and we do contingency work. But I think for the lawyer that's out there now, especially in an age when the billable hour is under, you know, real questioning by so many people, that you again, you really have to work it out. And if it's a question of lack of resources of the client, you need to work out some alternative arrangement even if you bill by the hour maybe you know do some on 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 contingency if you represent a defendant in litigation that's a very very difficult thing to do and i think lawyers are really asking for trouble by undertaking representation where it's pretty clear that at some point the client won't be able to pay this has become an issue in an area of practice none of us practice in but in in family law there was a, a commission appointed by the, our judicial council to look at this, and one of the things they found out, their main focus was other things, but this was interesting, is that if some lawyers will, in family law cases, take a significant retainer up front, uh, and then as soon as they're through the retainer and the client can't pay, seek to be removed from the case. And it's one of the reasons that in California family law courts, so many people wind up being in pro per and unrepresented. I just don't think Diane can talk about the ethics of that, but I think to undertake representation where you know up front that there'll be great difficulty in in continuing it through to the end raises a whole host of questions 
that lawyers are best to stay away from. Okay. And Greg, how about you? Are you willing to work with clients on fees? We do, although I, I should mention at the outset that um, well, one of the reasons why I left a large law firm was because I didn't want to work on an hourly basis. And for the 17 years my firm has been around, we build on a flat fee basis. And so we, we have a, a menu of, uh, of services and, and, and flat fees for them. And that's important because uh, it uh, when clients know up front what the costs are going to be for the process, they, I think, are going to be a lot less likely to have problems on the back end where clients don't pay you because they had sticker shock when they got the bill. They know up front exactly what it's going to cost for what we're going to be providing. But we do work with clients. I mean, in a lot of cases, especially since our fees are not uh, inexpensive, we need to work at a, a payment plan for our clients. And for some of our clients, if it's a physician hiring us individual for, individually, for example, we know while they're in residency training, they are paid a very low salary. And then as soon as they find they start their job, their salary may go up by uh, anywhere from five to ten times uh, the salary when they enter private practice versus what they make in residency. So we may, on our flat fee, charge a relatively modest amount uh, up front and have uh, the first number of months of payments uh, at a very low amount and then time our payments for our services to go up once we know that they are making a paycheck that they can afford to pay us higher amounts. So that's an example where we might customize uh, our payment schedule for the client. We also represent uh, large hospital systems, which don't have that problem as far as ability to pay. But in those cases, we adjust. We may adjust our fee schedule downward just because they are providing us a regular stream of work and we have a uh, economies of scale when we work with them over and over on matters. So that's uh, one way where we might work with them to reduce our fees, mainly to reward them for being a, a, an important client. Stephanie, if I can intervene, Greg should really be congratulated for this. He's been doing it for a number of years. He was way ahead of the curve. This is the future of law practice, which is determining value for services rendered, not just the automatic keeping of hours, which has caused so many problems at all ends of the spectrum. And when I started practicing, as a matter of fact, the bills that went out at the end just were for professional services rendered a set amount. And if the client thought it wasn't worth that, there was a discussion and there was an adjustment. Uh, the billable hour then came in as, as what amounted to an artificial metric because people don't like paying for time. They like paying for value. In Diane's case, people get the value, and the time is, is a metric for it because of her specialty. But except for rare, rare kinds of cases, I think, in law practice today, all lawyers have got to think of how they adjust what they charge for their services to the value that's delivered because that's ultimately, uh, you know, what people are looking for, what clients are looking for, and, and what Greg does. I wanted to ask you, Diane, I know it's pretty common for fee disputes to come up in attorney discipline matters. What do you advise your clients on fee agreements? I do a, a program on this every year at the Beverly Hills Bar and write repeatedly. And I've been writing the California Bar Journal for about 15 years now on a monthly basis. And the California State Bar has free sample fee forms available online. And your listeners can either email me and we'll send a link, or they can go to Google and do sample fee forms. And although they're Californian, which means they're, like, useful for 200,000 lawyers, they're useful for many more than, than that number because these are clauses that have been tested since about 1987. They're, these are about 31 pages of potential clauses. And, it, you know, why throw the dice with ambiguity and vagueness being interpreted against the lawyer when you have these clauses that 
are, are really a guide to these problems. When I have a State Bar investigation and it's about a fee agreement, then it's sort of um, a gift to me because I know the State Bar really in California doesn't deal with fee agreements and it will be referred out or to the mandatory fee arbitration panel. And in fact, as a way of, of proactively dealing with a potential fee dispute with a client, I have advised lawyers to obtain the proper forms and send them to the client. So if the bar sends my client a love letter, I'm able to say, well, obviously this is a fee dispute and isn't within the purview of your um, uh, investigation. And the other, the other great thing about using the State Bar fee forms is that if I'm acting as an expert witness or if I'm at the State Bar of California or if it's in a uh, fee dispute, when you walk in with a the blessed, sanctified, good housekeeping seal of approval fee agreement, well, you know, you've already won half the battle. So I teach fee agreement tune-ups constantly and strongly recommend these forms. Of course, all the clauses won't be useful for everyone, but here they're free, they're online, and I think they're highly useful for most people. And Right now we are suggesting, particularly I have some celebrity lawyer clients, and we're suggesting very strongly firm arbitration clauses because if you do have a dispute with the client, why well, have it all over the local press and in the media? So um, that's just some sort of a change we're using right now. Well, and Diane, maybe this is an odd question to ask, because you said you don't negotiate on your fees. But I'm curious. I think there's this idea that very successful attorneys won't negotiate on fees because they don't need to, and certainly that's true in some cases. But do you think that's as true as perhaps everyone thinks in this economy, and perhaps more people are negotiating on fees than we realize? Well, you know, I mean, I, I often say lawyers do much more pro bono than anyone ever recognizes, and I only wish I knew when my, I, I wish I knew when a case was becoming pro bono, you know, because sometimes that happens, I mean, that happens to everybody, but I like Greg's system of the, val, the value billing as things increase. Uh, I think my area is so niche practice that there is not a whole lot of negotiation. And frankly, I have clients who will say to me, um, sweetie, you don't know what you bring to the table. So if my name is going to go on something, I'm bringing, you know, new, like, you know, decade and a half, two decades of practice in this area and a certain reputation. And I don't think in certain areas, as much negotiation is going on. You know, Tom Morgan has a terrific book out called The Vanishing American Lawyer. That, too, parts of that are available online free. And he raises this concept that if you're in a niche practice, then you have some sort of security in these dire economic times. And so I am in that type of a niche practice and worked hard to get there. And I think Greg has probably done the same thing. And it does sort of buttress you from the, uh, the economic issues that we're all dealing with right now. Okay. I'm curious, because you mentioned your niche practice. How do you determine what to charge? Uh, did you find out what other ethics defense attorneys, if you're experienced, are charging, and how did yeah. you do that? Or? Yes, because we um, will see them in uh, expert witness depositions because I'm an active expert witness in legal malpractice and I'm very active in class actions, and it will be part of the expert witness report as to what they are charging. And so that's one way of determining it. And then oftentimes I'll charge just a little more because I'm bringing my reputation to the table, and okay. uh, that is worth something. I'm also curious in terms of setting up fee agreements, is it ever ethical to trade services for fees? 
it's you know it's interesting the states are sort of in a split about this and most of the opinions came out in the 80s but for example Abraham Lincoln bartered for a gun that was used a pistol that was used during the Mexican Re- revolution so bartering for services is something that goes way back although obviously you know we we didn't go to law school cuz we were going to accept chickens and clearly our families are not going to be able to be maintained in the lifestyle to which they've all become accustomed if we were accepting chickens or other things. But bartering has a history, and, and it is acceptable in uh, this case, questionable in North Carolina, permissible in Missouri, let's see, prohibited in Maryland, prohibited in Texas, not per se prohibited in Utah, okay in New York if you pay taxes. And one of the issues in these bartering circumstances is, it, is it a direct barter between the client and the lawyer, or is there some sort of organization or service that's going to receive a portion of the legal fees? Because we all know, going back to Dickens' time, that you, know, you can't split legal services, you can't split fees with non-lawyers. So that's like a well-established principle. And the way these concepts are really being tested right now with social media is on sites like Living Social and Groupon. So, for example, North Carolina uh, just did an opinion saying Groupon is, is ethically prohibited for North Carolina uh, lawyers, whereas a fellow named Mr. Reeder went in um, Missouri and got an opinion saying that Groupon is acceptable. He was selling estate planning, and uh, the, regulars approved, the regulators of Missouri approved of it, and so he's able to give these steep discounts. But one of the things that Howard raised, and I think it's, it's really important for us to be thinking about it, and that is that although we may be permitted to do something, is it really a good idea in terms of professionalism? Because we're not selling a car wash. We're selling our, our time and our focus and our professionalism. And so if you give a client that such a steep discount on day one, are they going to expect and anticipate and possibly justifiably require that kind of a discount down the road. So that's sort of something you need to be thinking about. And Groupon and these services also raise issues involving solicitation and some of those problems that, you know, vary throughout the United States. And I think that issue of giving someone a deep discount to begin with, that can cause problems and maybe they don't value your services. Howard and Greg, do you have thoughts on that? Well, there's another side to that. It all depends how and when you do it. For example, I have, over the years and still do today, have clients, for example, one without naming in, in the entertainment industry who I've handled major litigation for. But in between several pieces of major litigation, he regularly calls on what's going on in his life and what deals he's negotiating and and, uh, you know, asks for offhand things on strategy and some of the legal issues. And I just do it. I mean, it's not, you know, we have a relationship of trust. And uh, so I've never even added up the value, if there were time to it, of the amount of help or that I've attempted to give in those situations. But we both know that any time there's a major case that comes up, he's going to come to me and we will handle it. I think, again, it goes to the relationship. If someone walks in the office cold and you try and get them to be your client by giving a discount, that's one thing. If you've represented someone for years who needs some help, you don't want to be in the position of billing for 15 minutes a time or 20 minutes a time there. You just give it to maintain the relationship because I think the real relationship you want to develop with your clients 
is the old-fashioned counselor relationship where people trust you and come to you. And so I think the answer is it all depends when and who, but there are circumstances under which, you know, making yourself available to give people help is just a very good thing to do. Stephanie, can I just comment on that? The, the Earlier in the conversation, and Greg picked up on this, and that's the idea. That I, I like to make myself indispensable. So I have, like, my clients all know they can call me 24-7, and um, if they have an issue going on, I'd rather preload it. So they'll call me or they'll email me, is there an ethics opinion on this or something like And I just send it out to them. That's part of that indispensability quotient. If it's a pre-existing client, it's not worth my time to write down, as Howard was suggesting, a 15-minute interview. I mean, it's just it's not worth it. I just want to get it done and move on to the next issue. No, I think one of the things here that, you know, Diane has said and what Greg has talked about, what we've all talked about, there's a, there's a kind of theme here that's important to all of us which is that there's a relationship with clients beyond the formal retainer agreement for each individual item. I mean, Greg has spent years building his relationships with, with hospitals and through his website and, and the work that he does. And, and I think that lawyers, many lawyers have lost sight of that, that you know you ultimately build relationships with people, and it's from those relationships and helping them and providing them with information and giving them a sense of confidence that ultimately brings in the legal business and that you have to think that way in terms of relationships rather than just in terms of whatever the particular representation is at the moment. Greg, do you have anything to add to that? I've mentioned before that I, I work on a flat fee basis and that I try and develop the relationship early with clients. And one of the things that tied into what uh, Diane and others are saying is that we don't start billing until, you know, sometimes well toward the later parts of the process once we actually can start handling the immigration work. But, for example, I don't charge clients uh, or prospective clients in the uh, physician area for all the initial phone calls and conversations that I may have about the process, mainly because I want to uh, – the, the more information that they have – that I can provide, the more likely it is that the deal is going to happen and that I'm going to be getting the illegal work on the end. So it may be that I'm, you know, I'm several hours invested without ever sending a bill out uh, on the front end for a, a physician or for a uh, hospital that's recruiting a doctor. Uh, and I think that, that a lot of lawyers basically are so concerned about losing any bits of time in the process that they, uh, I think, they steer clients away where Whereas if you're willing to give a little away on the front end, it can pay off big on the back end. There's a wonderful, I don't know if you uh, watching Curb Your Enthusiasm, Larry David's uh, TV show, there's a wonderful scene where he bumps into his psychiatrist in line at the movie. <laughs> and they talk for 20 minutes or whatever, or 10 minutes, and then he gets a bill for that time. I mean, that's, that's exactly the kind of thing I think we're all saying, watch out, you know. All right. <laughs> Let's switch gears a bit and talk about beauty contests. Howard, as a partner at a well-known and successful litigation firm, what advice would you give to lawyers who are starting out at their own firms about beauty contests? How how can they bring it and convince the potential clients that they can do good work, if not better, than a bigger firm that's more well-known and perhaps more expensive? I think in today, except for some bet the company litigation, and even sometimes there, but putting that to aside, in a lot of litigation, clients are looking for, they're hiring lawyers, not law firms. They're looking for people that can get stuff done efficiently. And that if there is a true beauty contest, 
I think it's the work that's done before you walk in the room to learn as much as possible about the client, about what the dispute may be about. The more preparation you've shown before you walk in the room, the greater an indication you have as to, you know, being available and what you can accomplish afterwards. I just think, you know, learning about the individual or the business. And, and today, because of what's available on the Internet and for all sorts of other reasons, you can just find out an astonishing amount of information, you know, very, very efficiently. And dropping the right information at the right time. Very funny, if you just like a funny story. I once got a major client before I was with Girardi and Keith, an absolutely major client, a matter of fact, one of the large banks in the country to do a huge amount of work for them. Because in an interview with the general counsel, I made a reference to Christopher Marlowe to something from a play by Christopher Marlowe. And the GC looked at me and he said, you know, I'm, I have a master's degree in English literature. Marlowe was my specialty. I haven't heard anyone, it was a famous quote, I haven't heard anyone use that quote in 20 years. And that essentially was the reason that, you know, I, I got that particular business. I kicked myself afterwards for not having found out what the GC's background was. It just happened to be accidental. But I think that kind of knowledge about people is just vital to having people develop trust in you. And, Greg, what do you think about the, the beauty contest and how can smaller firms really convince well, the client to hire them? Yeah, I mean, it's, first of all, it's flattering when you hear from a, uh, you know, in my area, for example, it's a company with a household name that potentially has a lot of work, although I think we've gotten a little bit more savvy over the years about the process and that it, and when it's best to potentially take a pass because it's, it's hard in a lot of cases to do that when there's potentially a lot of work that can come in. But, I mean, we ask ourselves a couple of questions. One is, we, to the extent we can find out why, usually you don't know exactly why they're leaving the firm that they're leaving, but one of the things you might be able to do is find out whether, uh, and without them even having to tell you which firm is doing the work, find out whether that firm is in the running or not to keep the work. Because in a lot of cases, at least in my field, what's really happening with these contests is they're trying to, uh, they think that the firm that they're working with is a little expensive and they're trying to see if they can uh, maybe find a new firm, but more likely try and push down the prices of the firm that they're with so that going in, you're about to put a whole lot of work in, and the odds of actually any other firm that's being comp- that's competing getting the work may be uh, less than, than you think. And you can also a lot of times learn about you know what the values are of the uh, the company that's putting the, uh, the, the request for a proposal out based on the kinds of questions that they're asking in the work. And if it really looks like, for example, in our area, that they see this as commodity work and are not really as focused on on high service or or the quality of the work or having, in our case, for example, we have fewer matters staffed per attorney and fewer paralegals per attorney than some firms that are very high-volume firms. You can pick up on on a lot of that from the request for proposal itself. And then also you can just uh, hopefully have a conversation as well with the company that's putting the proposal out. The proposal is not giving enough information. But we've actually passed much more frequently in the last couple of years on requests for proposal. I think we usually stand a better chance when a firm seeks us out and specifically because they know about our reputation. You know, I, I kind of agree with Greg. I, I don't like beauty contests and uh, have as of late refused to participate, but I have seen, and this is important for your listeners, I have seen participation in beauty contests give rise to viable motions to disqualify due to the exposure to confidential client information. So um, prior to engaging in that, it's probably a good idea to obtain a consent or a waiver 
from the potential client to your ability to take future business and not be uh, conflicted out. And that raises the whole question. I know it was highly debated in California and is used by a great many firms now, which is a kind of blanket waiver of any future conflict. There are intellectual property litigation shops now, especially in patent litigation, that is a matter of course in their standard retainer agreement, basically have a blanket waiver of any future conflict. Is that appropriate? You know, Howard, I, I wrote a cover article for the LA Lawyer about four years ago about the use of blanket consents or boilerplate consents. I personally don't think that a you waive everything for the rest of your life type of waiver is going to hold up, but they haven't been litigated yet, and major firms throughout the United States are using them. It's just that no one has had the guts to try to test it yet. Because, I mean, as we all know, a waiver is the known relinquishment of an appreciated uh, right. So when you're waiving everything, what are you appreciating, and what do you know you're waiving? So I don't know. I don't think they'll hold up. No, I would say I think so many people. I mean, there are some that I've seen that are fairly narrow that only talk about, you know, you waive a conflict where someone is engaged in litigation. That's the one you don't waive if someone is in litigation against you, but you waive other things. A lot depends on the sophistication of the company, not just dealing with the general counsel, but if you ask the company to get outside advice on whether the waiver is enforceable or not. I, I think a lot will turn on you know, what the waiver says and who has been engaged in the nature of the client. Well, Howard raises a very interesting issue, and this is something we're seeing emerge during the last decade, and that is the, the greater emphasis being placed on the concept of a sophisticated client who's got counsel, and that maybe our, our fundamental idea of one-size-fits-all with our rules is not really accurate. or re It doesn't really reflect today's economic powerhouse corporations that can basically dictate requirements to a client. When you know when you have a sophisticated client who's got outside counsel, who's going over every document, then in that instance, I think that a uh, an informed written consent would hold up and the client's feet would, feet would be held to the fire. But that's different than a, a family law matter or criminal law matter. So one of the things you have to look at in terms of these consents is the context and the client's status. Okay. I want to thank you all so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.